You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is To Stir With Love, a criminal justice reform podcast, and uh, we are extremely honored uh, about who we have here tonight. We do have uh, some people who have been here before. We have uh, our... our <laughs> we have our usual panel, uh, Yitzchok Kolokowski, who is the chief of uh, services, of chaplain services in Weimar Prison. We also have Rev Benjamin Scheiman, who is the founder of and CEO of the Hindu Institute in the Helps. Um, and we have our sometime contributor, who uh, graciously uh, agreed to come on with us, uh, retired uh, criminal defense attorney, uh, Gershon Sternberg. And through Gershon's uh, ideas and reaching out, we also have with us Professor Andrea Lyon, who is a criminal defense attorney in uh, Chicago, who specializes in what we want to talk about tonight, which is death penalty defenses. And I, I, I don't really get it why, uh, Professor Lyon, that you were incredibly the first woman to lead a criminal uh, a, a, a defense uh, defending someone um, uh, in, in a capital case. Is, is that really true? I mean, that's- Yeah, it's really true. Um, I'm, I was the very first, um, which also uh, dates me a little bit, but um, yes, I've been doing well, this look, a long time. Well, look, you're not Methuselah's wife. I mean, we, <laughs> it's, it's, it's strange to me that, that you would think, I mean, there've been, there've been women lawyers for years and yet it seemed like they were shunted away from actually taking the lead defense in, in, in defending uh, people who were on trial for their lives. I don't know. It seems from watching old shows of, of Law and Order, it seems like they've been doing it for a long time. But I guess, I guess that's not the case, is it? Well, it's not. I mean, there are very few women who, when I got out of law school, there are very few women in the criminal law field at all. Um, in, in Chicago, the year I graduated, there was one woman in private practice who did criminal defense, and she had a brush cut. Um, it's just there, there was no, there just weren't any. Um, and, you know, that, that, of course, has changed. But when I uh, joined, I was in the Cook County Public Defender's Office in Chicago, and I joined the homicide unit. I was the only woman there for many years. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and I was the first to, to be lead counsel trying a death case in, in the country. That is just how things um, uh, shook out. Uh, and 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 we know. I mean, you're you're sort of like Joe Lewis. I'm saying you have a, a, an incredible record, right? Um, right. You you have actually uh, been able to successfully defend people from um, from the from getting the death penalty. Does that mean that you were actually got them exonerated, or you were able to uh, get the death penalty taken away from them? Well, um, I've personally tried 136 murder cases. Um, of them, somewhere between 30 and 40 were potentially capital cases. Um, and then 19 of those I lost and had to, had to try to save my client's life at the penalty phase, um, which I can describe that to you. If yeah, you like. tell us what, what does that mean? You lost. The, the way that the death penalty works is that it's a two-step process. First, the, the jury makes a decision as to whether or not the defendant is guilty of first degree murder or whatever the equivalent is in a particular state and whether the state has proved what's called an aggravating factor. The aggravating factor is is kind of like a plus factor. So uh, the killing of a police officer in the line of duty, for example, would be an aggravated murder that would be subject to the death penalty. But once the jury has made that decision, they then there's a penalty phase, a sentencing phase, where the prosecution presents reasons why the, the choice of punishment should be death and where the defense presents reasons why the choice of, uh, of um, punishment should be imprisonment. Usually the alternative is life without parole, but not 100% of the time. It varies from state to state. So when I say I had 19 where I lost the trial, what I mean is I had 19 who were convicted and where an aggravated factor was found and I won all 19 penalty phases that is the jury chose not to kill any of my clients and instead they were sentenced to life in prison some uh some uh numbers of years but yes Uh, correct now now 
and uh, and again, I know you've you were a pioneer in this field. I know you've written a, a book in this field. Um, you are dubbed, uh, I think that's the title of your book, right? The Angel of Death Row. Yeah. Right? Right. Tribune yeah. called me that. I can't shake it. I'm like the uh, least angelic person you'll ever meet. But <laughs> and it's and it's not <laughs> like you actually. And it's actually before death row. In other words, you are you, you're going to get them before they have to go on to death row. That's really what you have been fighting for. That's true. But I I also ran the agency in the state of Illinois. Um, after I left the public defender's office, I ran the agency that represented all of the death row inmates in the state of Illinois. So these were people I had whose cases I had not tried, but who had had their cases tried uh, and had been sentenced to death. Uh, and I ran that agency that reinvestigated those cases to do what's called a collateral attack, which is a, a post-conviction or in federal court, a federal habeas. Um, and we had a lot of success with that. Um, and a lot of the, the exonerations that you, um, you may have heard about in Illinois, uh, you know, came through the agency that I ran before I wow. I joined the faculty at uh, at University of Michigan. So, um, it it. Uh, and uh, professor, does that mean what you did was you were able to discover that perhaps there were inconsistencies in the trial, or that you were able to discover that some of these uh, souls on death row were actually innocent? Is that, or is it a combination it, it, of a number was, of things? It was both. Um, in in Illinois, we executed twelve and exonerated nineteen. I mean, 12 people we put to death and 19 people we discovered with affirmed death sentences. They'd had a trial, they were sentenced to death, and the Illinois Supreme Court had affirmed their sentence. They were the wrong person altogether. Mm-hmm. That's that, pretty bad even for government work, you know? Yes, it is. It's a, and, and this was your agency did the, due, uh, did the due diligence going back and looking at the evidence again and, and, and going back to the original arrest and the uh, evidence that was gathered then and, 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 and were able to discover that they actually had the wrong person? Yes, not all of those cases were cases that my agency did. There were um, three or four of them that were done by other lawyers, but most of them were, were uh, by the agency. And um, that's, that's the reason that former Governor Ryan uh, declared a moratorium on executions and ultimately cleared out death row. And then 10 years ago, well, 11 years ago now, uh, Illinois got rid of the death penalty. Right, but right. Um, yeah. Which, which I know Rabbi Scheinman, I know, is, is, is also extremely uh, grateful for. I know is in terms of our, our, the Jewish values and other things, it's, cre- it's clearly something that, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, about how, you know, what should be done. But there are still, I don't know the percentage, I didn't do my homework here, but there's still a, quite a number of states with the death penalty, correct? That's I mean, correct, yes. But it's the fewest number that we've ever had. Um, more and more states have been getting rid of the death penalty. Uh, so we have the federal death penalty, which is, of course, in every state, whether they have a death penalty or not. Um, and then we have the death penalty in 33 states right now, and wow. it's, but it's not active in probably four or five of those states. And um, if you had asked me five or eight years ago, as more and more states were, were abolishing the death penalty, whether um, we might see the Supreme Court make a decision that evolving standards of decency require abolishing the death penalty altogether when we got to the number where half or more of the states don't have it, I would have said there would have been a reasonable chance, but given the makeup of the court now, I think it unlikely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I take it, although you sort of like earned your stripes and sort of became famous as a person involved with defending and, and, and arguing for cases in the death penalty, that you are an advocate of the elimination of the death penalty uh, across the board, that we should eliminate it right yeah. now. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. So can, what would you feel are the, is the prime rationale for that? Uh, other than the fact that what you just said, that maybe we, we got the wrong person and that it's so final and complete that if, if your numbers mean anything, we might be putting to death 50% of the wrong people. Other than that, is there other reasons why you feel, a professor, we should eliminate the death penalty? Well, there are, there are a number of reasons, uh, some that are personal and some that have to do with what I've seen over the many years that I've done these cases. Um, and, and perhaps I could illustrate what I mean with a, with a, with a little story. Um, so right before John Wayne Gacy was executed, you may have 
sure. of him. He, of course. Um, it was a, a notorious serial killer. And um, he was actually third in line to be executed, but they moved him up to first because they wanted to execute someone for whom it would be very difficult to speak uh, in favor of and who was white. Everybody else in line was black. So um, anyway, at the, this was not a case that um, my agency had 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 anything to do with because it predated the existence of, of the agency itself, um, which started in my spare bedroom with an <laughs> IBM Selectric typewriter and a phone. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I remember those. <laughs> I'm talking about phones. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, um, so because that execution was imminent, um, Kent Law School here in Chicago held a, uh, a symposium about the death penalty. And so they had uh, William Kunkel, who was the prosecutor who prosecuted Gacy um, and put him on death row as one of the speakers. They had a current prosecutor. They had me um, from the agency. And I think they had a, a there, there were five or six of us talking about the death penalty. And um, so at this point, I'd been running the agency for mm, a year, maybe a year and a half, something like that. And I had been quite shocked at how many people were actually the wrong person altogether. If you had told me before I started the agency that we, you know, that there would be wrongful convictions with people on death row, I would have said maybe one, you know, maybe. But by the time we had started reinvestigating these cases, the, the numbers were almost 10%. I mean, that's a very high, seven, 8% of the, the, of the cases we had reinvestigated they just had the wrong person, just the wrong person altogether. And so when we were talking about the problem of innocence on that panel, I said this. And Mr. Kunkel interrupted me and goes, no, 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 no. It's nowhere near that number. He said, he said the, the number of wrongful, con uh, wrongful convictions and death sentences is more, you know, like three to 5%. And that, he said, is an acceptable margin of error. Can you imagine and I wheeled on him and I said to him, you know, that's because, you know, it's never going to be your brother or anyone, you know, who's going to be in that position because you are part of the privileged class. It's going to be my clients who are poor and people of color and that no one cares about, that no one has cared about since their, since their birth. And, you know, and those are the people that are going to be wrongfully convicted and it's acceptable to you to kill my clients. Um, and so a big part of my own view about about this, I suppose, comes from, you know, from a, a cultural background and a, and a view that a belief in redemption. Um, I've seen it too much not to know that it's true. And um, nobody is only the worst thing they've ever done in their life. No one. Well, you mentioned John Wayne Gacy, right? And I don't have to start. I think everyone here uh, despite Yitzchak's young age, knows about the the terrible acts that he committed yes. and, he, and he admitted to committing to. You, you you don't believe a professor that for someone who was a serial killer who murdered so ugly and terribly so many that you don't think there should even be a death sentence on the books for a monster like him? I don't think you should make a hero out of him. I'll tell you that, and that's what you do. He becomes a he becomes a, a star. Um, I, I, there are people that are too damaged to be among us and should never be among us. It's a much smaller number than people think, but there are people like that. And I believe Mr. Gacy was one of them, but there was no need to kill him. How are you supposed to teach children that killing is wrong by killing? Explain that to me. I don't, I don't think that uh, he became a hero because he was executed. He, you know, there's this culture of making serial killers into heroes that we see in uh, in Japan and in other countries, and and yes. to a certain extent in the United States. I don't think executing him made him any kind of a martyr or a hero to anybody. And uh, and also there there uh, we we don't believe killing is wrong. We believe murder is wrong. There is a difference between uh, killing that is justified and killing that is criminal in in Jewish law and Jewish values. So it's uh, there I. I there is not an idea, you know, killing in self-defense is not wrong. It is right. Killing in war to defend your country is not, there's nothing wrong with that. And executing a, someone who was deserving of the death penalty 
is a Jewish value. That's part of part of what the Torah says. Now, we it's certainly tempered in the rabbinical tradition. We it's certainly you know it's not uh, as black and white as it would seem from reading scripture alone. But it's to to say that killing is wrong. Uh, that's that's not our that's not a Jewish value. Killing is wrong. Murder is wrong. I mean, I've certainly heard that argument before, but, um, you know, one of the things that's really interesting or one of the arguments that's made a lot about why we need a death penalty is its deterrent effect, that it's going to cause people to pause before, you know, committing murder. Um, and in fact, every study that's ever been done about the, the potential deterrent effect has shown either no effect or if anything, uh, you know, states that have the death penalty have higher murder rates than states that don't. But one of the other interesting things, Rabbi. Yeah, well, is, let me interrupt you just for a second there. And I know you, 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 you're going to respond to Rabbi Kolakowski, but could you also explain that parenthetically? Because I know we talked about it earlier when we were setting up today's recording, but it sounds counterintuitive. Can you, can you just take a minute to explain why it should be that way? That when, you know, in a I state, mean, you know, there's been a, been a, a great deal of academic and philosophical writing about why that's the case. You know why you you have a state uh, like Texas and you compare it with a state like uh, I don't know another another large state pick one um, you know that doesn't California California uh, will have a higher per capita murder rate than states that do not have the death penalty. Um, it, 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 again, uh, when you would compare, for example, Illinois and Wisconsin, you know, which are, of course Wisconsin is much smaller. But if you just look at it per capita, Wisconsin's murder rate was, you know, significantly less than Illinois when we had a death penalty. And um, some academics have posited that uh, if there is a deterrent effect, people are more deterred by the thought of spending the rest of their life in prison than by the thought of being killed. That's a very difficult thing to determine. And I, you know, I'm uncertain whether that's the case or not. But one of the other things that has come out of these series of studies regarding the potential deterrent effect is that in the two to three weeks after a, an execution that gets publicity, the murder rate in that state goes up statistic, by a statistically significant amount. Um, somewhere some, in some states as, as, as low as 3% up in Texas and in uh, Florida, it goes up by about 10%, which is a significant amount. And again, the, the fact that these things, you know, you can't say that one causes the other, but it's interesting that it is a, it is a constant uh, that has been found by study after study. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I'm not. So, I'm so you're actually saying that it's, it is perhaps, you know, counter to what Rabbi Kolakowski was saying. It's possible that with the amount of publicity that comes to a frenzy sort of at the execution, the people who are a little bit, you know, on the fence that are anyway sort of like aggressive and a little bit, you know, towards that, this sort of like spurs them to to walk in the walk in the in those same steps. I guess that's what you're sort of like suggesting, right? I was, I obviously, mean, that it, certainly it, has been been posited by by some of these uh, of these studies. Um, you know, I, again, you know, because things happen, you know, first A happens, then B, then C doesn't mean that A causes C. We, you know, we can't make that that leap uh, as, as an intellectual matter or, you know, or as a logical matter. Um, but it is interesting that uh, that that it is it is not a deterrent effect. Um, Professor, let me I know that Rabbi Scheinman has is, is, is an extremely, you know, he's always counseling and talking to to uh, a former uh, incarcerated people and president. So I know he's going to have to leave in about a minute or two. Rabbi Scheinman, can you just respond before you go? Um, uh, you know, you, you heard Rabbi Kolakowski's pushback. Um, would you also join Rabbi Kolakowski or are you more in Professor um, Lyon's court? Well, uh, with the uh, criminal justice system in America, I really don't know. It seems so imperfect. And uh, so, you know, I, I would I would err on the side of uh, locking up somebody the rest of their life and you know, ultimately, we believe Hashem will take care of what has to get taken care of. And uh, but it's 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 a very imperfect system. It's uh, even the even the uh, you know, the, the Sanhedrin once in 70 years is one version. 
they were called the bloody court. The, the amount of evidence, the amount of proof you needed, it was very hard. And, uh, you know, better to let a thousand uh, guilty men go than take one innocent life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, 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 one, the one, you know, right. the person that you have dead to rights here and there, I don't know. It's just a, it's a very imperfect system in America. This is what this whole uh, um, uh, podcast is about criminal justice there's something wrong with the system with an imperfect system i would i would err on the side of uh, you know so go so you from- so you would join i mean your personal opinion is is that you agree with professor lyon that uh that we should probably move to and push for the elimination of the death penalty all across the board right especially in our imperfect really in, this is not just an imperfect system it's a really imperfect system mm-hmm. it's broken right uh-huh. okay um yeah. Uh, professor, I, I want thank you, Rabbi. Professor, I want you to know that before we you agreed so graciously to be on the show almost last minute, um, we had a, a person who wasn't able to show up and I, I can't speak for him, but he uh, is a, a the managing uh, spokesman for an outfit that's called Conservatives Against the Death Penalty. Mm-hmm. And I think it started in the state of Montana, which I think does have the death penalty. Something tells it me does. Montana must have the death penalty. It does. <laughs> it yes. must. Yes. It, it's but, seldom used, but they have it. Right. And there, there was a, a groundswell of un, of understanding that, although you know Gacy finally got his, I think through lethal injection, so many people on death row are, um, in a way, clogging the, the the legal system by appeal after appeal, and that whether they eventually die or not, it costs, it ends up costing the state more to, um, to consistently uh, defend the, those uh, uh, against, you know, his appeals and everything. So they were saying that just even if you are conservative, have a conservative bent, it's better government to, uh, to eliminate the death penalty. You've heard about this. Can, can you talk a little bit about, about that, uh, whether that, is, is, is that just a, a, an easy way uh, argument to, to get people to agree with you? Or does it actually make sense, what, that argument? Well, first of all, um, you know, one of the arguments that you hear is that why should we feed this guy for the next 30 years? You know, um, he killed someone, he doesn't deserve to live anymore. You know, you hear that argument. And so the first thing when I hear that argument, if I'm debating the death penalty somewhere, is I make sure that the person asking me that question believes that you ought to have a trial. Some people don't. (laughs) So um, it would be cheaper to arrest somebody and then shoot them in the head. That would be cheaper. But assuming that you would like to have a trial and some kind of review of that trial, it is is not cheaper to kill them than it is to... um, to, to, to try them and, and sentence them to imprisonment. And there have been a lot of studies that have shown that. In fact, right after the, uh, the execution of, of Gacy, um, the Chicago Tribune, um, hardly the, the liberal think tank of the Midwest, um, did, a, uh, uh, did a study or took a look at what it cost to prosecute Gacy and to defend against his appeals. And what they found, which is, correct is that the expense is in the trial it's far less in the appeal there is a thought that the appeals go on forever and ever and they cost a fortune and they're not nothing they don't cost nothing i'm not saying that but the expense is at the trial because you have to have more expert witnesses um the the american bar association in every state that has a death penalty has a requirement that there are two attorneys in on both sides that one of them is qualified as learned counsel to do a death penalty case in the first place, that there's an investigator, a mitigation specialist, there's all kinds of experts that you need because you're trying not just the question, you know, did this person commit this murder? You are also trying everything about his or her life. That is um, every bad thing they've ever done that gets introduced in aggravation by the prosecution to attempt to get the jury to kill him and the opposite right? Everything that you can do to explain how the defendant ended up taking the path that he did and what um, challenges he might have faced. And all of that takes an enormous amount of time and an enormous amount of money. Jury selection takes triple the amount of time. The trial takes four times the amount of time. And so most of the money is actually spent at trial. And if you take a look at Illinois again, which is, of course, the state I'm most familiar with, um, 
in the beginning of, uh, of the modern death penalty in the late 70s and early 80s, the prosecution was getting the death penalty a lot. But as the defense began to learn how to defend these cases, they were not. And by the time I left the public defender's office, they were only getting a death verdict in one out of 12 cases that they asked for it in. So you had these hugely expensive trials for 11 cases that did not result in a death sentence. Um, and then you would have whatever appeals would, would go with that uh, regarding the imprisonment or the propriety of the trial. So, it, it, the, Professor, let me just push back for a second. I mean, life imprisonment without a chance for parole is, is a pretty... Right, but that that wouldn't call for these amount of investigations. I mean, it's pretty much a death sentence, right? When someone is is is, is going to be contained in a in a small area and can never leave, why wouldn't you also have the same sort of due diligence and and everything like bringing all these other factors in? Because we're not talking about eliminating uh, life imprisonment without parole either, right? So why is it only when it's a death sentence does all did all that expense well up? And why won't it well up if, if, you, if you take it away? Because the United States Supreme Court has said in many, many cases um, that death is different because of its finality and that, that you, it requires a, a, a kind of super due process. It requires more than, uh, than a case where, where imprisonment is, is there. The idea being that if you get it wrong and someone is wrongfully imprisoned, while they're still alive, there's something you can do about it. But once they're dead, there isn't. Um, we've had wrongful executions. Uh, Todd Willingham is, is the one that's best known out of Texas who was executed for an arson that killed his family that turned out not to be an arson at all. It wasn't an arson. It was an electrical fire. So, um, you know, the, so the, the conservative argument is let's not spend our money on one more failed government program, let's spend our money more intelligently. Now, how they would define intelligently and how I might define intelligently might be different. I think that we should spend more money on schools and nutrition and getting rid of food deserts and you know stopping the school to, uh, to prison pipeline and a lot of other kinds of things so that we don't have these problems in the first place. But what they are talking about which makes sense is, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I uh, um, was working on a case where the, the defendant had gotten the death penalty um, and I, when I was running that, the, uh, the, the, the agency I told you about. And um, he had gotten the death penalty for a, a murder and there was a wounding of another, uh, another victim who was uh, a quadriple quadriplegic. And his family couldn't afford a motorized wheelchair. They were spending millions to try to kill this guy, Mr. Flores. That's like just stupid. Buy the guy a wheelchair. Give him health care. Do the thing, you know, take care of him. It, it's, right. right. So this actually brings in another point. Isn't there a pushback from the families who have lost their child, their wife, their brother, their son, isn't there like an idea that they, those families are pushing that they want to see justice done, biblical justice done. They want to, you know, be able to know that the murderer of their child was put to death. Are their voice, is it, is it the voices of the families that is keeping the death penalty in place? And how would you react to that? I mean, if you were, you know, if, if somebody close to you, a uh, neighbor of yours had lost a child, you know, and they knew you were arguing against the death penalty, you know, and they would come and say, Professor, you know, you're arguing against the death penalty. If they find that guy, I want him dead. Like, what would you say to the, to the family? Well, the first thing I would say is you can never tell someone to not to feel what they do. If people feel the desire for, for vengeance, they feel that desire. They're very, they're angry, they're hurt, and that's how they feel. But you'd be surprised how many victims' families do not want the death penalty, not in their name. There is an organ, there's an organization called Murder Victims Families for Reconciliation, which are people who have lost a sister or a daughter or a son to murder who oppose the death penalty because they believe in redemption, you know, for a, a, a whole host of a complex of reasons why they do. 
And it has been my experience that um, that what's, you know, you go through, when, when you lose someone, you go through these different stages of grief. And, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with all of them. And, but one of them, when someone dies suddenly is, is anger and shock. And one of the, one of the, the bad things that happens with the death penalty is that it is to the benefit of those prosecutors seeking the death penalty to keep the family angry, to keep them wanting to, to exact revenge because they have an emotional impact on the jury. Their presence in the courtroom does. Um, and so I believe that that is not healthy for the family. I think that the family should be angry and should be vengeful and it should feel all the things they feel. And then they need to get better. And you don't get better by staying angry and vengeful. That just keeps you in a terrible place. It's, it's unhealthy. And I've had experience you know, I, I think I've been privileged to, to represent people. And I've also been privileged to get to know people in, in the most stressful circumstances. And I, I just, I want to illustrate this with, with a, uh, with, with a story. I represented a guy, his first name is Paul. I won't identify him beyond that. And um, he was charged in a number of sexual assaults and he was charged in the sexual assault murders of two different women. One was an older white woman. One was a young sex worker, 16 year old girl, black. And um, the prosecution's own racism caused them to, to, to go first, I believe was racism, to go first on the case of the, of the dead white woman rather than the dead black woman because they thought that was more important or they thought they had a better chance of getting the death penalty or whatever it was. And so, um, so they, they were, it's called electing when you have like four or five, six different cases, the prosecution elects what to go on first. Okay. And so they elected to go on one of the sexual assaults first, then the white woman, then the black woman. And the black woman's case was the only one that was death eligible because of when it occurred, when, because there was an, an active statute at the time it occurred. So, um, you know, I, I was going to, the, the, the sexual assaults were in one courtroom and the, the, the homicides were in another courtroom. And um, I, I would go to court and, uh, you know, the, one, the, the homicides were trailing the other case. So nothing much was happening there. Um, and um, one day I was about to leave and this, this African-American woman in her, you know, mid to late forties uh, stops me and asks me to explain what happened in court. And I don't recognize her. I don't think she's any part of Paul's family. So I, I said, uh, you know, I sort of just asked who she was. And it turned out she was the mother of the deceased, the, the, the girl who had died. So I kind of got very uncomfortable. And I said, you know, I'm on the defense here. And she says, I know, but the prosecutors told me they were too busy to talk to me today. And so I just wanted to understand what happened. So I, I just said, well, here's what happened. And I explained about the elect and election and how this works and all the rest of that. So she nodded and, um, and after a while, you know, after a few months, she just would come and talk to me anyway, just cause I was nice to her. I mean, why would I be nice to her? <laughs> you so. know, I, right. And so, um, anyway, she comes to court one day and, and then we worked it out so she could call me so I could tell her if anything of moment was going to come, because if she came to court, she had to miss a day of work and wouldn't get paid. And I, so I, I said, you know, don't come unless there's something going to happen that, you know, you ought to see. So we developed something of a relationship. Um, and one day she comes in and it's a day that I'm filing a, a large number of motions uh, attacking the, the constitutionality of the Illinois um, death penalty and a, a bunch of other death penalty related motions in the case. And um, so I finished filing them and they were set for hearing. And as I'm leaving and I, I went to explain to her, she asked me what happened and I explained and she she's you know, just kind of nodded and had kind of like this, just, uh, you know, knot in her forehead. And so, you know, I went on, went to my office and a couple of days later, she calls me and she says, um, could I meet her for coffee? Uh, so I say, well, uh, sure. Um, and I go and I meet her for coffee. And this is what she says to me. She says, I've been thinking and I don't want 
anybody else's mother to feel the way I do. How can I help you? Can you imagine the nobility of that woman? So you, you seem she, to be you seem to be saying, Professor, that that unlike yourself, that you know treated her with humanity and you were doing your job, you felt that the prosecution was sort of keeping her around as a prop and stoking the coals of anger in order to get their uh, what they wanted to get out of it, right? That's basically... Well, I, that's I, what they, they often do. They were kind of ignoring her. She was unimportant to them because she was Black, in my, in my view. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the system is terribly racist. Yes, and, yes so, I, I, I wanted yeah. you to, to mention that as well, because our, our, the, the, we, the fellow who was supposed to be here, who is the, head, who is the manager of that, uh, of that outfit, uh, in his promotional videos, he speaks about the fact that the death penalty is a racist um, uh, holdover. And it, it, it's, could you just explain? I mean, I, I could probably explain. Hold it. Rabbi Kivalevitz, can I? Uh, Professor Baldus's study of Georgia uh, in, in, a, in a case called McCleskey versus Kemp, the United States Supreme Court considered his study. And in that study, um, uh, controlling for aggravating factors, how many people were dead, you know, criminal history, all of those kinds of things. Professor Baldus found that a defendant charged with a, a, a death penalty, a death eligible case was four times as likely to get the death penalty if he was black as, as opposed to white. And if the victim was white, he was 16 times as likely to get the death penalty. Wow. 16 times. And the, the Supreme Court refused to do anything about it, saying that we can't really, you know, figure out, like, because there's all these different counties and, and you know, prosecutors get to make their own decisions and blah, blah, blah. And uh, it, it, it's a really painful decision to read. It's just painful. And it, it is the, um, where the, that famous quote from Justice Brennan in dissent is, what is it the majority fears? Too much justice? What they what they were afraid of is is if is if we were allowed the defense was allowed to attack the racism inherent in the system, the different way that people get treated, the different way that they get seen, the racist use of prosecut uh, uh, by prosecutors to get rid of anybody that looks like my client, or God forbid, is Jewish. That's definitely the kiss of death, um, you know. And um, they that that. If we start with the death penalty and actually take into account race, we're going to have to take into account race in the criminal justice system, which is set up and, and, and comes from the slave codes. The police come from slave catchers. You know, in, in the book that I have coming out regarding the Defender General, I have a chapter in there in which I say the system isn't broken. It's doing exactly what it was designed to do. Uh -huh. So, so this, I guess, leads us to the you know, the, the next aspect here is that, uh, Professor, you have a, a book coming out, as you say, and you have an idea that the same way there is an attorney general who we mentioned earlier in our earlier conversation, they've all they've all been uh, ex prosecutors, including, I guess, the most famous one I remember, I guess, is Jana Reno or any of the uh, um, uh, attorney generals. I don't know if the present who's the present attorney general now. Long, uh, forceful. Uh, we are going to be tough on 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 crime. Um, so you have an idea that there should be the same way. There's an attorney general. There should be a defender general, right? So talk about your book and and, and how you're going to what your idea is for that. Well, I chair an alliance of people that um, think there ought to be a defender general of the United States, and uh, and there's a number of reasons why. Um, one of them is that um, when you're talking about policy changes at the federal level, uh, you know, new statutes like looking at the 1994 crime bill, which is, you know, responsible and mostly the most, the, the single bill most responsible for mass incarceration. Um, at the time that it was being debated and discussed and all the rest of that, the only people weighing in were prosecutors and politicians. That is the attorney general's office, uh, you know, the solicitor general's office, and 
politicians and you know you never got in trouble for being tough on crime so being you know tough three strikes you're out all that kind of stuff was was extremely you know marketable um and uh you know president clinton uh it is did a lot of damage um in in this regard led senator yeah. biden too yes that's true too and um and so he, so there was no one at the table to say, look, this is how this is going to play out. What are you talking about? Cocaine powder that white people use and crack cocaine that black people use should be treated differently and you get more time for using crack. What are you talking about? There, there was no voice there. There was nobody who had ever stood in the well of the courtroom next to a human being who is facing the might of the government or, or of a state and, and, and defending that person and understanding what, exactly what, what they're facing. And the, the disparate amount of um, resources that are given to the defense versus the prosecution and the enormous overwhelming caseloads and all of those things, there's, there is no place to, for that po those policies to be dealt with. Similarly, there is no office that can come in to the, the Supreme Court or, or other federal circuit courts to write amicus briefs the way that the Solicitor General's office does to, to, to represent the position of the poor who are being affected, who may be affected by a decision. That is where a decision is going to have an effect beyond the individuals that are, you know, are, are litigating. Um, there's, there's no office to do that. Um, and there is no central repository of information about how, um, you know, the, the promise of Gideon versus Rainwright, which is the decision that said, even if you're poor, you get to have a lawyer, how that actually works out. There was a study that was recently published by the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers that looked at misdemeanor courts in Louisiana. And the average amount of time that a public defender spends, including trial on a misdemeanor, is seven minutes. Minutes. When I was in the public defender's office and in a homicide, and before I joined the homicide unit and was in a felony courtroom, I had somewhere between 215 and 225 felonies myself at any given time. And I worked very hard, but I know I screwed over people because I could not possibly investigate every case. And we have for every county all over the country, they have different ways of, of doing stuff. And there's no way to keep track of that or to set up any kind of standards for representation. And one of the reasons that we end up getting the wrong guy, not just in death penalty cases, but in lots of cases, is because an adequate investigation isn't done by the defense because they cannot do it when they are so overwhelmed. And so one of the other things that, that a defender general could do would be to set standards, uh, to incentivize better training by, you know, with grant giving, for example, and um, to also know what representation looks like. There's a county, I know you're going to think I'm making this up. I swear you probably will, but there's a county in Michigan, not the deep South, Michigan, um, that uh, hires out its, its public defense work to a firm, you know, which in many parts of the country, that's what they do. They appoint individuals or they, they have a firm that takes the, those cases for them. They don't have a public defender's office in the traditional sense. And um, that's the, the firm that gets the contract is the firm that's the lowest bidder. And so the firm that had the contract as of the last uh, time that we looked, uh, the National Association for Public Defense is trying to gather all this information, which is a Herculean task with no task and, no, no, and you know, very little uh, money, um, that firm bid $10 a felony. $10 a felony. Which means that's the, that's the amount they would get for each case is $10, right? $10. Yeah. So they're not going to do anything other than show up in court and plead somebody. Now, I'm not saying people shouldn't plead guilty if they're guilty. You know, I, that's not the point. But when you add the, the huge amount of power that prosecutors have by making choices what to charge somebody with 
and, 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 and hanging over their head, you know, huge, huge risk if they go to trial and lose. You see more and more vanishing trials because public defenders don't have the time or the resources to do the cases properly. Uh, the private bar doesn't, you know, it, it represents probably, I would say, 15, maybe 20% at most of, of people charged with crimes. Um, and, uh, and the, you know, the, the, if we're serious that we want to see justice done, if we're serious that we want to be sure that we have the right person and that the punishment fits the crime and that we try to rehabilitate people, which is in the constitution of the state of Illinois and in many other state constitutions, then we have to put our money where our mouth is instead of putting it into private prisons and, 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 you know, the prison industrial complex. So um, for all of these reasons, I think there needs to be as a part of the executive in, in some form, an office of the defender general that who, whose remit is to do all of those things. It, it sounds very enterprising, and you are saying this should be a cabinet-level position, but it also seems, and I know you've written a book about it, and I just heard about it today from you, it sounds like this person would be somewhat an adversarial position to other parts of, like, for example, it would almost be like the yin and the yang, your defender general versus your attorney general, right? And there would be sort of like these, these, these almost like these warring teams, right? Well, that... not, not necessarily, because some of the, sometimes if you have reasonable conversations with people that are, quote, your opponents, you can find middle ground. But if there's no opportunity to even have those conversations until the damage has been done, that's very difficult. Nobody likes to admit they've made a mistake. Nobody wants to say we prosecuted the wrong person. Nobody wants to say we asked for the death penalty when we shouldn't have. No one wants to do that. And one of the ways to avoid that is to do it right in the first place. How about that? Yeah, right. But, you know, look, I, I, you know, I, 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 I do remember, you know, the, the Clinton crime bill. And I remember one of the things that, you know, before Clinton got in trouble for his own personal picadillos, one of the things that Clinton was standing out in people's minds was the fact that he had become a bipartisan type of president. He had moved to the center. People could get on board with him. There was something positive about the fact, Professor, that you had conservatives and liberals of not really bonding, but at least being able to find some common ground. What, what, what I would ask you is, although I, I, I appreciate the passion and the ideas behind of what you're saying, but do you really believe that this is something, especially the couple of things that before you didn't elaborate about, like, sounds like you would like to, um, you know, def am I right in saying you defund the police or restructure the police completely? Does it sound? Well, I, 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 let me just make, let me just finish my point. My point is, it sounds okay, like what you're, and, and I, I'm not, I'm not being critical of it because I'm sort of apolitical. But I'm wondering if is what you're floating the type of thing that moderates can 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 come together on, or would people see it as something so like almost you know um, ab abolitionist in a way, and that maybe that would kill it before it could even get a chance to get to gain steam. Um, again, I don't want to sound wishy-washy, but as a realist, I think, you know, that's part of what, that's why people think Clinton was okay, because he was able to sort of make peace. I'm not talking about that piece of legislation. Do you hear what, you're what I'm asking? I hear exactly what you're asking. And this is exactly the sort of thing that would, in fact, uh, be, a, be something that, that, uh, that could, that different people with different political views could get behind. Everybody thinks we ought to only prosecute the guilty party. Nobody thinks that you should have a lawyer who sleeps through your death sentencing hearing, who's, which happened in Texas. I'm not making this up. And that case was affirmed. The death sentence was affirmed by the Texas Court of Appeals because they said that the lawyer didn't sleep through the important parts of the trial. I, 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 I'm not kidding. Um, and so I think I think that this would be a way um, to institutionalize and make sure that that voice is heard. Not that that voice is there to argue, you know, and tell the attorney general, no, you shouldn't prosecute this kind of case, 
but that the that the defender general would be at the table when there's our, our policy decisions being made to give input from the point of view of the poor and oppressed that we represent. That is the point. But the, the, you didn't finish your, your idea before, and I've heard this, of course, uh, by a number of writers. I forgot their names, but again, I, I have seen it, and I don't want to be dismissive by not being able to mention them, but I have heard what you've said before, that you said that the police system, the way we have it now, is really an outgrowth of, uh, of, of the slave guarding, and, um, and therefore are, is the next step to say we've got to rethink policing in general in the whole country and that we need to again let me ask you again are you are you for defunding the way the situation the system is now and and erasing the blackboard and coming up with a whole new way of law enforcement i think so let me ask you this question we would or let me put it to you this way we would not consider putting a soldier on the front lines of a war for 20 years. They would go crazy, right? They would have post-traumatic stress disorder. They, their judgments would be, and yet we do that with police. We have people that are patrolling you know, dangerous neighborhoods for decades. And then we're surprised that they don't know how to behave properly. So part of what we have to think about is how do we take care of our public and our, you know, and the police and everyone else so that we are making places safer for each other. In my view, no one should be on the street patrolling more than five years. I'm not talking now about detectives or, you know, uh, uh, evidence technicians, people that have specialized um, uh, it's skills that you would want to have over a long period of time, but that it should be viewed more like something that you do for, for a while, maybe, you know, like Israel does, where you have public services, part of your, your citizenship obligation. Um, and that maybe if more people were involved in policing that were from the communities that were getting policed uh, and everyone understood that they were going to do something else later. Maybe maybe you move to the fire department. Maybe you you uh, go to streets and sanitation. I'm not suggesting that we we throw people out and not let them have jobs. That's not what I mean. Yeah. What I mean is is that is that even assuming that every police officer goes into police work for the most noble of reasons, and many do, it's very difficult not to turn cynical, not to turn angry not to, to start to see the people that you're policing as the enemy, not to see the world as them and us. And that is what we have now. And we're not gonna get rid of it unless we, we do something major different. And we also ask the police to do things that it's not fair to ask them to do. Police officers are not trained to deal with somebody who's you know, in, a, in a schizophrenic uh, delusional state. They, they don't know what to do. They don't. And we shouldn't ask them to do that either. So, so what you are calling for is not a, a elimination of patrol cars in, 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 in inner cities. What you're asking for is a variegation of what's happening now. But because I think, uh, you know, as, as, as studies have shown that the, you know, the, the, un, the black population actually in polls that I've, I've heard, I haven't read them have actually to want more policing in their in their neighborhoods you know some do and some don't um, again I, again the, the numbers i've heard again remember i you know, you know I, i'm a rabbinical person a talmudic person you know i i i can't say that this is my bread and butter and i know statistics and studies you know you know once you can quote one study another study but i have heard a pretty consistent uh, 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 collection of of people telling me that in the black communities they actually want police presence there maybe as you said in a more benign way but at least in a way that because because you're talking about a war zone downtown chicago not far from your offices that's a that's a war zone isn't it no that is really a wrong thing to say. And I take umbrage at you saying that. 
Okay, then um, I don't know where I, your office, this is what I've been well, hearing. It does, it, that's not the point. The point is, is that the fact that we have a lot of violence in, in, in my city and in many places is an outgrowth of a lot of things that have to do with, with economics and hopelessness and poor schools. And I don't care about, you know, the Second Amendment, guns. If we did anything to interdict guns at all, we would not have this. I cannot tell you how many cases I have seen where people who know and love each other end up killing each other because somebody is drunk or jealous or angry or whatever, and there's a gun near the hand. And so a, a, a large part of it has to do with that. I am not saying that there isn't a crime problem. I'm not saying that there isn't a violence problem. I'm saying that if we are serious about wanting to solve it, we have to be willing to invest resources before it becomes a problem, not after. I would much rather spend money on college tuition than prison. Yitzchak, I know that, and, and again, I, 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 like I said, I was a Chicagoan for 20 years. So believe me, I, I, it, was a, it was a city where my children were born. I love the city. Um, but again, you know, I, and, I, and, and I'm happy that you're there uh, making it a better one. Yitzchak, I know you wanted to say something to our guest. I mean, I, 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 I did want to make it clear that like, when you mentioned the, 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 uh, the Second Amendment, I mean, Chicago and all of these cities where there is high gun crime have the most gun control. So just like drug you know, laws don't stop criminals from getting dr- drugs, gun laws don't stop uh, criminals from getting guns, but it does make the law-abiding citizens... Uh, sitting ducks you know these these gun-free zones are where the criminals are going to get away with their crimes because they don't have any fear of you know getting you know of having uh of you know being uh being killed themselves so they you know and that's, i believe that's just, that really that's just the, not true the history, that's just the history not true. i mean it is true i mean look at look at what happened in in pittsburgh where you had the the temple there where it was where Several people were killed, and then in uh, California there was a synagogue where only one person was killed because it was a good guy with a gun who prevented. Or the churches where, you know, a good guy with a gun he stops he stops the killing before. But well, they... you know, it, w- it would be helpful if you had had actual um, some actual facts here. And the, the facts are that generally speaking, the person who has a gun to protect themselves legally has a gun uh, who is not a trained who's not trained, right? You can have a gun with no training at all. As long as you can pass the background check, you can get a gun. It's not that easy to pass the background And those people generally get killed with their own gun. Um, The the statistics are are absolutely clear. And the the whole idea of a good guy with a gun is just um, a, a myth. It's not true. That doesn't mean that it's never happened but it almost never happens. And so I, I just, I, I really think well, that, 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 that doesn't change the fact that, that there mm-hmm. is much more gun violence in places with more gun control than with less gun, gun control. That's, that's a, whether that, or not, you know. That, that is not true. <laughs> the homicide rates in places with almost no gun control like Texas are just as high or higher than they are in Chicago. But Chicago gets reported more um, you know, the local news biases people into thinking that there is more violence than there is, into thinking that there's more crime than there is. I'm not saying that there's no crime. I'm not saying that there's no homicide. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you are responding to the local news bias that tells you that you are in more danger than you are. And you are in more danger getting in a car and driving. I'll tell you that. Well, yes, I, we, we know that, unfortunately, the accident rates in, in cars is very high. Professor, look, you've been extremely kind, you know, taking a cold call from Gary and then from me. Uh, you've been a great, it's been a great conversation. You've enlightened us. We, again, at To Stir With Love, we are behind uh, any way that we can make the criminal justice system a more humane, more compassionate, more understanding. 
And I think people who are going to be listening to this program are going to hear your distinctive voice. I think you're going to be able to, uh, I think, garner a lot of, um, of, 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 of people who are going to uh, give you uh, hopefully some uh, emotional and, and they'll write into you. Uh, and I know they can find <laughs> you. I know they can find you on your website, right? That's um, what's your website again? So they can. We it's can... it's andrealion.com. Or if they want to read more about Defender General, it's defendergeneral.com. Right, and the and the book is coming out. Um, it, it will be uh, it, You can pre-order it now, but it'll be available July first. Uh huh. You know the way books are, are are done today. It's probably you know I'm sure people can get it as an ebook or on Kindle or something like that. And that's true um, too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, look, we wish you all the best. Uh, and uh, like we say, you know, this is a um, as we enter into the Purim holiday uh, tomorrow night, a holiday very much to think about what it means to defend, uh, because as you know, there was a uh, a, a government-wide uh, uh, law that that put people in danger. As you know, the the government-sanctioned law that allowed the Jews to be to be to be killed, to be to be searched out and killed. So Purim is definitely a cautionary tale to recognize. Uh, how government can be used in a positive and a negative way. So I think it's apropos uh, that you came uh, on our show tonight. A happy and uh, safe Purim to everyone. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Lyon. And we'll catch you hopefully next time in another To Stir With Love. Be well, everybody. Take care. Okay. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 